Hello, everyone. I must discuss my other concerns with religion. Christianity's sinister use of money. A religion that is purportedly not of this world and steadfastly non-materialistic is nevertheless deeply mired in a money game, a game that works remarkably well to perpetuate its world dominance at the expense of its victims. Here are three ways how money furthers the goals of Christianity. Number one, first and most obvious, extracting money from its followers allows construction of churches, cathedrals, TV, and social media, and pays the salaries some extravagant of preachers along with authors, choir directors, deacons, and so on. This together builds an immense and impregnable edifice of ecclesiastical power. This is causing me to feel intellectual suffering, intellectual agony, intellectual affliction, intellectual torture, intellectual torment, and intellectual discomfort. Number two, by encouraging its followers to donate one-tenth of their income to the church over a bit of time, this adds up to a lot of money. Once an individual has sunk this much money into an quote-unquote investment, it is very difficult to just walk away from it. So the practice of tithing is a very useful tool for keeping even doubting people in the fold and continuing to tithe. This is causing me intellectual soreness, intellectual ache, intellectual aching, intellectual hurt, intellectual throb, intellectual throbbing, intellectual smarting, and intellectual pricking. Number three, most people at best can save about 10% of their income for retirement or of or off normal expenses. So tithing works to keep people poor. This means fewer vacations and more trips to church. Fewer possessions, boats, golf, or the like that can take people away from attending church. And more dependence on prayer and church-based support. Fewer, quote-unquote, worldly distractions allows for more time in church or Bible study. The fact that Christianity needs so much money to perpetuate its existence is a good indication that it is not completely the project of a celestial deity, but rather a concoction of, quote-unquote, worldly and often greedy minds. If money is necessary to keep your religion afloat, it is a good clue that it is not completely being run by an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient, omnipresent, anthropomorphic God. This is all causing me to feel intellectual sting, intellectual stinging, intellectual twin. Tw- Intellectual twinge, intellectual shooting pain, intellectual stab, intellectual pang, intellectual spasm, intellectual stitch, intellectual cramps, intellectual irritation, intellectual stiffness, 
and intellectual tenderness, meaning intellectual sensitivity to pain. Next, God's loathsome view of women. There are many repugnant sexist and chauvinistic elements of the Bible when it comes to the classification of women as compared to men. But seeing them in one place rather than individually has a much greater impact. The following is taken from Valerie Tarico, who is a well-published secularist. The following Bible passages, courtesy of Valerie Tarico, show the classic Jewish-slash-Christian denigrating position relating to women. Not all the passages contain rape, but they do show that women are not respected in the Judeo-slash-Christian cultures. I'll tell you what I think after I read the passages. A wife is a man's property. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor, according to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. (sighs) Daughters can be bought and sold if a man sells his daughter as a servant She is not to go free as male servants do, according to Exodus chapter 21, verse 7. A raped daughter can be sold to her rapist. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. According to Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 28 through 29. Collecting wives and sex slaves is a sign of status. He, Solomon, had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, a thousand women, and his wives led him astray. First Kings chapter 11 verse 3. Used brides deserve death. If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the girl's virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 21 through... Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 20 through 21. I couldn't even get the passage right the first time because... This is just all horrifying, appalling, terrifying, horrible, and terrible. Women, but only virgins, are to be taken as spoils of war. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man. 
But say for yourselves, every girl who has never slept with a man, Numbers chapter 31, verse 17 through 18. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a comment already. I, I can't wait anymore. This is all detestable. This is all gruesome. This is all hideous. This is all horrendous. This is all awful. Menstruating women are spiritually unclean. Ugh. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days. Anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. Anything she lies on during her period will be unclean. Anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Anyone who touches anything she sits on will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water. The priest is to sacrifice one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. In this way, he'll make atonement for her before the Lord for the uncleanness of her discharge. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them, according to Leviticus chapter 15, verse 19 through 31. This is all nauseating, sickening, spine-chilling, and atrocious. Oh, God, I hate the fact that there's more. Pun intended. Ugh. A woman is twice as unclean after giving birth to a girl as to a boy. A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised, and the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter for two weeks, the woman will be unclean as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she has to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. According to Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. This is all stomach-turning and stomach-churning. This is gut-churning for me. A woman's promise is binding only if her father or husband agrees. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. When a young woman still living in her father's household makes a vow to the Lord or obligates herself by a pledge, and her father hears about her vow or pledge but says nothing to her, then all her vows and every pledge by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her father forbids her when he hears about it, none of her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. The Lord will release her because her father has forbidden her. A woman's vow is meaningless unless approved by her husband or father. But if her husband nullifies them when he hears about them, then none of the vows or pledges that came from her lips will stand. Her husband has nullified them. And the Lord will release her. her husband may confirm or nullify any vow she makes or any sworn pledge to deny herself. 
Numbers chapter 30 verses 1 through 16. This is all horrid, vomitous, sick-making, and yucky. Women should be seen, not heard. Women should remain silent in the churches. Women shouldn't preach, shouldn't teach, shouldn't be pastors, shouldn't run a church. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. This is all icky, lovely, heinous, and obscene. In case you missed that submission thing, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, or which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 24. That is all vile, nasty, and off-putting. More submission and childbearing is a as a form of atonement. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach her to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Which is not true because Adam went along with it. So that's theological deception. But women will be saved through childbearing. They continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. I got to be honest, that is all completely fucked up and complete bullshit because Eve gets vilified, but not Adam. Adam ate the fruit, too. We can't say it's an apple because the Bible doesn't say it was an apple, but Snakes and women get vilified, but not men, according to conservative theology. But Adam didn't do his job by protecting his wife if he if he's, has headship over her. So they don't think of Adam as a bitch ass, but they see Eve that way. I speak like that because that word has been used to demean women. And that word has been used to even be of of denigration to men. Because that word means, in the context that they put it in, to call a man a woman, according to hypermasculinity. It's one of the worst insults. But they call women bitches. Sometimes they call women bitch asses. 
And that's the hypocrisy of hypermasculinity. How does these passages make me feel? This causes me to feel revulsion, detestation, and the yuck factor. Women were created for men, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So what they're saying is that women are not the image of God, but men are. Doesn't that contradict the passage of male and female, he created them, he meaning God, in assigning male gender to God is problematic because of making male supremacy, male superiority divine, and that assigning male gender pronouns to God is disrespectful to women because of the toxic masculinity imagery of God. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman from man. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12 to 2 through 10. To me, that's shitty. Here's why. They were, I would say that, first of all, the fact that the Bible dis- dishonors non-binary persons It's disgraceful. The fact that the Bible does not honor transgender persons is distasteful. And the fact that the Bible is, is inhospitable to LGBTQI plus persons is disdainful. I would say that the entire gender and sexual diversity where we were all created for each other so we can all display a spectrum of reverence for each other. It does not mean worship. It means profound respect. How does this passage in particular makes me feel? Abhorrence, repugnance, repellence, and repellency. And profound disapproval for me. Sleeping with women is dirty. No one could learn the song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. I would say that virginity is a misogynistic, abusive traumatic social construct that is used to bully women and girls and it teaches men and boys it's okay to bully women and girls which is a damn lie in and of itself they follow the lamb wherever he goes they were purchased from among mankind offered as first fruits to god and the lamb 
Revelation chapter 14, verse 3 through 4. I feel like they they it's okay for men to be sexually reckless but not women. No one should be sexually reckless by the way. And it's a sexual double standard. Women shouldn't be fornicating, but who who, who do men usually fornicate with? Women. So that's sexual scandalous hypocrisy and that's also an example of sexual pharisaism and sexual churchianity and then I've noticed that I don't want my son I don't want my son to be gay but if I'm okay for my with my daughter to be lesbian that means that you're wishy-washy when it comes to gayness in and of itself. But you claim to be evangelical, but you think that gay and woman, oh yeah, you know, yeah, that's effeminate. You know, that's soft, that's weak, that's physically weaker sex inferior. Yeah, they're all one and the same, which is horseshit. Gay does not mean all the negative characteristics of life. Being female does not mean all the bad parts of life either. I said the same thing for emphasis. Just reworded it differently. Being a woman and being a girl, being LGBTQI+, being non-binary are all beautiful inside of themselves and their physical appearances. I would say that gender and sexual diversity is fabulous, fantabulous, and fantastic to me. This list is just a sampling of the Bible verses that either instruct or illustrate proper relations between men and women. Correction. This list is just a sampling of the Bible verses that either instruct and illustrate improper, falsified relationships, which are not real relationships at all, between men and women. In context, they, they often are mixed among passages that teach proper relationships with children, slaves, and foreigners. Correction. In context, they often are mixed among human rights violating passages that teach improper, falsified relationships, which are not real relationships at all, with children, slaves, and foreigners. The Bible doesn't forbid contraception, and the Bible doesn't forbid abortion, but it is easy to see why Bible-believing fundamentalists might have negative feelings about both. By the way, I am pro-contraception and I am pro-choice. Such a primitive and benighted view of women would be well beneath the dignity of virtually any man living today. And to believe that this was, and apparently still is, the view of an all-unchanging, all-wise, all-powerful God 
is is astronomically beyond preposterous and borderline frivolous. Actually, it's totally frivolous. So all these passages encourage female objectification, which is the act of treating women and girls as objects and as things. It is a part of female dehumanization, the act of disavowing the humanity of women and girls. Female sexual objectification which is the act of treating women and girls as mere objects of sexual desire, is a subset of female objectification, as is female self-objectification, the objectification of oneself as women and girls. The female objectification of social relationships is discussed as reification. So objectifying social relationships that women and girls have. So the Bible encourages female instrumentality, treating women and girls as tools for others' purposes. Denial of female autonomy, treating women and girls as lacking in autonomy and self-determination. Female inertness, treating women and girls as lacking in agency and activity. Female fungibility, treating women and girls as interchangeable with parentheses other objects. I didn't put the word other there. I'm just describing how male massagers and female misogynists feel. Female violability, treating women and girls as lacking in boundary integrity viable as quote unquote something, notice not someone, that is that are permissible to break up, smash, break into. Treating women and girls as play game toys or video games. Ugh. Female ownership. Treating women and girls as though they could be owned, bought, and sold, such as slavery. Denial of female subjectivity. Treating women and girls as though there is no need for concern for their experiences and their feelings. Reduction to female body. The treatment of women and girls is identified with their bodies and body parts. Reduction to female appearance. The treatment of women and girls primarily in terms of how they look and how they appear to the senses. Female silencing. The treatment of women and girls as if they are silent, lacking the capacity to speak. And the rejection of female bodily integrity and the rejection of female bodily autonomy have all been Christianized by conservative theologians and conservative theology fans. And they love treating women and girls as commodities and as objects without regards to personalities and dignities, which again is glorified by the religious right. I call them the the religious dead wrong.
The baby killing test. Most Christians view the Bible as the singular inspired work of God, placing it in a different and more exalted category above all other literary works of men, no women at all, which is sexism in and of itself that has been churchified, religionized, spiritualized, and Christianized. Being a masterpiece of the creator, everything in the Bible must be true, fair, and righteous. Um, that is a lie. Giving that the following is a thought experiment that tests that hypothesis. To all the religious Christians, I'd like to ask you an interesting question. I'd like to know whether you personally agree or disagree with your God on the following commands. Do you agree with your God that the innocent babies and infants living in the cities that God wants to punish should be dashed against rocks and walls and floors so that they die instantly? Psalms chapter 137 verse 9. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Even though I'm, I'm secular, I say disagree. The people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women ripped open. Isaiah chapter 13 verse 16. Pay attention, pro-lifers. By the way, I say I disagree. Everyone that is found shall be thrust through, and everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled, and their wives ravished. Ravished means raped in this context. According to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 15 through 16. I say that I disagree. Listen up, anti-abortionists. Their, bow, their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 18. I say I disagree. Religious Christians, do you agree with your God that the innocent pregnant women living in the city, that God punishes should have their stomachs ripped open savagely so that both the woman and fetus die a horrific bloody death to i'm i'm talking to those who claim that the fetus is a person even though science disagrees with that according to evidence at that time menahem starting out from terza attacked tips and everyone in the city in its vicinity because they refused to open their gates. He sacked Tipsa and ripped open all the pregnant women. Second Kings chapter 15 verse 16. Oh, I disagree because the basically the Bible writers enjoy the maternal mortality rates that are disproportionate among black women compared to white women. The Bible writers 
are condoning domestic violence and pregnancy. The Bible writers' words are encouraging to rapists who impregnate their victims. The Bible writers don't take the issue of infant mortality in black and brown communities seriously. They wouldn't have a problem with the fear of the browning of North America amongst the racists in our world. The black women who are deceased because of childbirth, the Bible writers offer no compassion to them. And the Bible writers' words are inspiring to those who commit violent acts against abortion clinics. Just tell me whether you agree or disagree with your God on these commands. Please don't sidestep the question. I know you can't answer this because either answer will make you look bad. Now, I'm going to be civilized here and offer you a way out of this no-win situation here. And that way is if you are ready to concede that God never commanded nor wrote any of this. And therefore, these are written by male pigs who call themselves men who had savage and barbaric beliefs and and savage barbaric ways that were their own creation due to their primitive primal beastly animal like nature now think about it do you really think that an all loving merciful wise god would give such orders can't can't you just admit that these words are merely the works of a savage tribe of Israelites who are warlike and barbaric. It should be so obvious to you by now. Religious Christians, visualize this. Could you do it? Religious Christians, in the author's previous post titled, Do You Agree With Your God? The writer asks whether you agreed or disagreed with your God that innocent Babies and infants should be smashed against rocks and walls and pregnant women should have their stomachs ripped open so that they and their infant die together as he commanded in the Bible. In response, a lot of you responded by saying that you do agree with your God or you implied that you agree by saying that God is always right and just. All right, now here's what I want you to do now. Close your eyes and try to visualize the following. Suppose... You lived in the Old Testament era and God commanded you to capture a city. And then afterward, he commands you to take the babies and dash them against the walls or rocks. Now, try to visualize yourself going into one of the captured cities' homes and doing one of the following. Number one, from a warm crib, you pick up a living, breathing, flesh and blood baby who is smiling at you and then taking it and with all your strength, throwing it against the wall as hard as you can. Or two, imagine taking the warm, living, breathing, flesh and blood, smiling baby and carrying it outside to the edge of a cliff with rocks below and then purposely dropping the warm, blooded baby right off of it. Can you really do that? Could you honestly bring yourself to throw a living, breathing baby off the cliff? Now, I know that a lot of you can't, hopefully. So why don't you give yourselves a break and just admit that God would never have commanded these things? 
and therefore these Old Testament stories never happen, and these books in the Bible are not completely the word of a loving God, but a fallible dog shit so-called men. Please give yourselves a break and remove your guilt, uneasiness, and doubt, and just admit the plain-ass truth. Stop forcing your mind to believe things that your heart knows not to be fully true. It's not really that damn hard if you fucking try. I've done it before, and so can you. A rubber band can stretch only so far before it breaks in the credulity that a religious Christian is burdened with must expand very close to that snapping point. Once you get over that hump and realize that some parts of the Bible were written by men who were not totally inspired by God, then it becomes easy to see the Bible for what it really is. A 100% human creation that has 100% Nothing to do with any supernatural beings. I would say that that the human rights honoring part of the Bible our healthy imagery of God and the human rights violating parts of the Bible are bigoted humans is imagery of God which is not God at all How does all this make me feel? All those passages makes me feel anger, annoyance, vexation, exasperation, crossness, irritation, and irritability. It makes me feel a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, and hostility. It makes me feel indignation, peak, displeasure, resentment, rage, fury, wrath, outrage, temper, road rage, air rage, irascibility, ill temper, dyspepsia, spleen, ill, uh, no humor at all, tetchiness, testiness, waspiciousness, ire, choler, and bile. Makes me feel wrathful. It says... Christianity maintains a set of fictions, a belief system that fails to stand on reliable evidence must create a set of fictions to sustain its believability with its followers. One more time. A belief system that fails to stand on reliable evidence must create a set of fictions to sustain its believability with its followers. And such it is with Christianity. The following website provides a list of some of the fictions accepted by most Christians without reservation. These considerations and the evidence of Mick Grass's textbook suggest that the purpose of teaching Christian theology is to maintain a set of fictions. So here are the, 
here are the set of fictions I'm about to tell you. Christianity was founded by Jesus of Nazareth. Lie. The institution of Christianity opposes and rejects violence. Historically, that's a lie. Dark Ages. The burning of witches. Executing heretics. The Crusades. Colonialism, imperialism. The Roman Empire. And the Spanish Inquisition. The Atlantic slave trade. And the extermination of Native Americans hundreds of years ago. Christianity promulgates doctrines taught by Jesus. That is not 100% true. Because... Those with dictatorship hearts who wanted to keep the oppressed oppressed warped the teachings of Jesus. That explains Trumpism. These doctrines have been maintained and disseminated in the form intended by Jesus, first by the apostles, then by the Christian church. That's a lie. How do you think slaveholding religion and the slave Bible occurred. How do you think Southern Christianity occurred? How do you think the Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan adopting Christianity occurred? How do you think situational Christianity occurred? How do you think the Christian right occurred. Although incidents of disharmony and ill will have occurred within the church, there have been exceptions, not the rule. That's not true. That's a lie. Because if that were the case, Christian nationalism wouldn't be rising Theocracy wouldn't be rising. The spread of Christianity was the result of peaceful proselytizing. That's a lie. Burning down pagan temples and burning books that are considered pagan. That's chaotic violence to me. The texts of the New Testament have been preserved in essentially unchanged form since they're written. No, that's a lie. Because 
According to the majority of scholars, the Bible is filled with contradictions, errors, forgeries, tampering, editing in and editing out, contaminations, and distortions. and hijacking and manipulation. Plus, we don't have the original biblical manuscripts. All you have is a bunch of copies of copies of copies of what people assume to be the original manuscripts, but what they don't fully know in all actuality. The New Testament is the set of books initially solely accepted by Christians as divine inspired. It's not true. That's a lie because The Bible was assembled by Constantine and men affiliated with him. The Bible was not assembled at all by women. The Bible has women's names in it, but they were never written by the women that those Bible books are named after. The institution of Christianity is supposed to war and promotes peace. That's not true. That's a lie because pagans, Muslims, Jews, and secularists have been historically slaughtered by autocrats who called themselves Christians. To these can be added a set of social fictions that the church adopts in response to the Enlightenment. The institution of Christianity promotes justice. That's a lie, because if that were true, rape survivors would not be leaving the church in droves. Domestic violence slash intimate partner violence survivors would not be leaving the church in droves. The institution of Christianity seeks to eliminate poverty. That's not true because if that were the case, the prosperity gospel would be widely denounced because it causes the exclusion of economic justice and apophobia, which is fear and hatred of the poor, has been endorsed by church hierarchy and church pews. The institution of Christianity opposes authoritarian government. That's not true. If that were the case, clerical abuse would not be as common 
as it is now. And the Make America Great Again movement would not be promoted by the MAGA crowd that calls themselves Christians. Some of them are in Congress as I'm speaking to you right now. The institution of Christianity promotes education and partition of knowledge is distinct from indoctrination. That's not true because they are all about forcing prayer in schools on families that aren't Christian. They promote the useless absence-only sex education. They promote the ridiculous Sunday Sabbatarianism. They promote the nonsensical homeschooling, private schooling for all children. They promote the Christian nationalism version of Christian Zionism. They promote the lie that America is a Christian nation. They promote the insane public institutions are required to display the Ten Commandments, which means that they are in favor of atheist discrimination and Islamophobia. And they think that Christian privilege is holy, which is not. They think that male privilege is godly, which is a falsehood in and of itself. Each of these assertions can be refuted by objective evidence that would be sufficient to convince any impartial person. Religious Christianity is a testament to how to control the minds of the gullible. And um, there's more for me. Signs you might be in a religious cult. It could be as presumed that a real religion would not show attributes of being a cult. 
Rather, it would transcend aspects of human frailties and biases and reveal a global harmony. Religious Christianity is practiced by most of its fathers exhibit symptoms of, of being a cult existed below. I might be in a religious cult if my religion is more important than my friends. Mm, 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 mm. I might be in a religious cult if my religion makes me feel like a chosen one to the point where it's okay for me to endorse discriminatory routines. Mm, 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 mm. I might be in a religious cult if I feel compelled to outwardly show off my religiosity, not Christ-likeness, to my friends and family. Woo! I might be in a religious cult if I can't fathom how someone could live a good life without my religion, my denomination, my house of worship, my theology, and my interpretations of the Bible and other religious texts. Mm, mm, mm. I might be in a religious cult if my pastor tries to influence how I ought to vote and which social matters to attend to. Mm, mm, mm. I might be in a religious cult if I feel like I'm with the good guys and anybody not in the faith are just crummy and cruddy. Mm, mm. I might be in a religious cult if my religion tells me that I am unloved without it. Woo! Yikes. Ouch. And, it, and I might be in a religious cult if I choose my religion over my own children. Woo. That stings like a bee. There's a popular adage that the proof is in the pudding. You can have a beautiful pudding maker and brag about how great the engineering was that went into making it. But if the pudding is less than stellar, none of that really matters. Likewise, religious Christianity can be placed on a pedestal as occupying the highest pinnacle of human existence. But when you analyze the end effect it has on people's lives and realize that so much of that effect is detrimental to the way people interact with each other, it leaves sense that the pudding speaks to a problem with the pudding maker. It felt like being flogged by a whip. The man who made Christianity a worldwide religion was a hideous butcher endorsed by the Christians of his time. Constantine was the Roman emperor who opened up the entire empire to the unrestricted practice of Christianity, thus affording what was at that time a struggling religion to become the predominant world religion, especially by ending the death penalty, also known as capital punishment, called crucifixions. But he was a tyrant who set an example for the ruthless behavior of fake me out Pharisees called Christian leaders to follow. The following is taken from rejection of pascalwager.net. Constantine's behavior was to be a preview to subsequent behaviors of said be prominent Christians once they had gained political power. To become the sole emperor, he strangled Lucius, the emperor of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, after promising to spare his life. When he became emperor, by then definitely a convinced Christian in his illusional, delusional, hallucinating 
psychosis-saturated mind, Constantine put to death his son Crispus, a nephew, and his wife Fausta. He apparently chose to abandon the difference between reality and myths. Through all this, it should be noted that the Christian church, rejoicing its newfound prominence, did not raise a single word of criticism against the emperor's misbehavior and misconduct. To top it all up, Constantine was openly accepted by the Christians as the head of the as the head of the church on earth, even though Jesus never claimed that title for himself. This then was the man who called a general council in the year 325 to settle the dispute regarding Jesus' divinity. Even though Jesus did not call a general council regarding his divinity disputes while he was alive. There's an irony to the situation. Most Christians today owe their faith to a man, not Jesus, but Constantine, who killed his son and his wife over what has been conjectured was a false accusation of sexual infidelity. The fact that the Christians of Constantine's time did not condemn him for this act or remove him from his position as head of the church speaks volumes for how this developing religion that has so many underdeveloped people in it was more focused on gaining power than following the precepts for their Lord and Savior. What followed in the centuries to come was a continuation of brutality by self described Christians against any perceived enemy and maniacal campaigns still present today to completely ignore the teachings of Jesus in the Bible. All this makes me feel Sadness, unhappiness, sorrow, dejection, regret, depression, misery, cheerlessness, downheartedness, despondency, despair, desolation, wretchedness, glumness, gloom, gloominess, dolefulness, melancholy, low spirits, mournfulness, woe, brokenheartedness, heartache, grief, down, disconsolateness, disconsolation, dismalness, no happiness, and the condition or quality of being sad. bit on religion. Christianity became clothed with paganism after the Emperor Constantine and the Romans took over Christianity in the 4th century. They reworked it in the fashion of the existing pagan religions. Eventually it became virtually indistinguishable in almost all respects. The following is taken from um, a writer badnewsaboutchristianity.com No sooner had Constantine the Great abolished the superstitions of his ancestors then magnificent churches were erected everywhere for Christians. These churches, which were richly adorned with pictures and images, bore a striking resemblance to the pagan temples, both in their outward and inward form. So they call people pagans who they say are sinners, but they're actually projecting and deflecting. 
so they'll defend celebrating pagan holidays such as Easter and Christmas. But they claim to not have any paganism to them at all. They'll defend celebrating Thanksgiving, which is a non-Christian holiday, but they claim to be completely abiding by Jesus. Mm-hmm. They'll even celebrate Halloween by having Hallelujah Night, where he dressed up his costumes, which again is pagan. But they say that they aren't worldly at all. Mm-mm-mm. The rites and institutions by which the Greeks and Romans and other nations had formally testified their veneration for fictitious deities were now adopted with some slight alterations by Christian bishops in the service of the true God, according to how they define it. Hence it happened that in the 3rd and 4th centuries in the religion of the Greeks and Romans differed very little in its external appearance from that of the Christians. They had both a most pompous and splendid ritual, gorgeous robes, mid, mid Mitras, tiaras, wax tapers, croziers, processions, lustrations, images, and gold and silver vases. And many such circumstances were equally to be seen in heathen temples and Christian churches. Bishops, bishops adopt not only the shepherd's crook carried by the Egyptian god Osiris, but also his crown. This crown was used, for example, by the Bishop of Rome, who became a prototype. Papal Tierra Tiara. Many familiar Christian concepts are pagan ideas only slightly disguised. The clerical tonsure seems to have been borrowed from the priests of Isis, and so often Christians seem to have synthesized a number of existing practices. The tonsure also seems to have been used as part of an old Roman ceremony of adoption. Trainee priests abandoned their own families, were adopted into the family of their bishops, and trainee monks into the family of their abbots. This should be a cause of concern for believing Christians. Christianity was not a Roman religion, and its focus was in Jerusalem, not Rome. When Rome appropriated the faith and used it to blanket their empire, they distorted it in ways that left it significantly changed from its original foundation. Jewish Christianity died. Roman Christianity lives on today. How does this all make me feel? It makes me feel heartache and heartbreak. Now let's get to the sex part. Um... So, here's more of what I learned from that department in my life. I have learned that many people... are so busy trying to get busy, sexually speaking, 
that they often dismiss intentionally or unintentionally the essence of the of their partners the quintessence of their partners the souls of their partners spirits of their partners the ethos of their partners the nature of their partners the life the lives of their partners the life bloods of their partners the cores of their partners the hearts of their partners, the centers of their partners, the crux of their partners, the nubs of their partners, the nucleus of their partners, the kernels of their partners, the marrows of their partners, the meat, metaphorically speaking, of their partners, the pits of their partners, the gist of their partners, the substance of their partners, the principles of their partners, the central parts of their partners, the fundamental qualities of their partners, the basic qualities of their partners, the essential parts of their partners, the intrinsic nature of their partners, their sum and substance of their partners, the realities of their partners, the actualities of their partners, the quiddities of their partners, the essence of their partners, the nitty-gritty of their partners. They don't think about the intrinsic nature and dispensable quality of their partner, especially something abstract that determines their true characters. And I also had to learn that um, when it comes to sex, that so many people um, sadly have a way of thinking of their partners that is based upon that many people are sexually wicked they're sexually fearful even their sexual kindness is sexually cruel they don't understand sexual justice they're covered with sexual violence they're bent on sexual evil they put up a bold sexual front they're brought down by sexual calamity they hate those with sexual integrity they lead others into sexual wrongfulness their sexual conduct is sexually devious they plot sexual violence others sexually hide when they rise to sexual power they're unconcerned about those in sexual poverty they detest the sexually upright not religiously speaking they are sexually swept away they are trapped by sexually evil desires constant sexual trouble befalls them their sexual income results in sexual trouble because they are sexually duplicitous and they have sexual dictatorship sexual autocrat sexual Orwellian hearts. They engage in sexual regimes. They fall into constant sexual trouble. They are 
sexually fearful constantly, they will suddenly sexually fall. They will be sexually found out. They are pursued by sexual misfortune. They will be punished for sexual rebellion. They will not sexually remain. They earn sexually deceptive wages. They go to sexual death. They end only in sexual wrath. They'll be sexually overthrown. They'll be brought down by sexual calamity. And society detests the sexually perverse. They will bow to the sexually wholesome people. And they are destroyed by their own sexually sickening lives. I'm talking about those with sexual slavery in their psyches that they want to live out. And they are not of healthy sexual legacies because they are of of repulsive sexual legacies. They force people to sexually endure. They have sexually conniving tongues. Those with this sexual speech pattern are filled with wrong sexual motives, sexual gossip, sexual slander, and a sexual desire to twist sexual truth. They have sexually careless tongues. Those with this sexual speech pattern are filled with sexual lies, sexually quick-tempered words, and sexual curses, which can lead to sexual rebellion and sexual destruction. When I say curses, I'm talking about they make negative sexual affirmations. They are sexually foolish failures. They ignore healthy sexual instruction. They hate appropriate sexual correction. They think they need no sexually sound advice. They mock sexually wise people. They lead others sexually astray. They end in sexual torture, sexual torment, and sexual shame. They sexually self-destruct by refusing needful sexual rebuke. They are the sexually foolish. They lack healthy sexual judgment. They enjoy sexual foolishness. They are sexually gullible. They avoid the sexually wise. They feed on sexual foolishness. They receive sexual punishment by their own sexual bad decisions. 
They pursue elusive sexual dreams. They blame their sexual failures on their partners and the entire world except themselves. They are a sexually catastrophic example to others. They are sexually proud and sexually arrogant. They they scorn sexually wise advice. Again, they scorn sexually wise advice. They make sexual truth useless. They sexually trust in themselves, which makes them make more sexually senseless decisions. They unleash their sexual anger. They inherit sexual folly. They cause sexual strife and sexual quarrels. They receive no sexual honor. They stir up sexual anger. They go the sexually wrong ways. They lash out when discovered in sexual folly. They they are endangered by their sexual words. They walk a troublesome sexual path. They'll never be chosen as sexual counselors. They must be guided by sexual hardship. They persist in sexual foolishness. They are beaten because they are sexually disgraceful. They do not respond well to life's ways of sexually punishing them for their sexual... Madness. That's why they lash out even sexually. And lastly, about sex. They are sexually lazy. They are a sexual annoyance. They chase psychotic sexual fantasies. They waste sexually good resources. They want sexual much because sexual little. They experience sexual destitution. They have sexual trouble all through life. They're like those who sexually destroy. They go sexually hungry and sexually thirsty. They won't even sexually feed themselves. They won't sexually plow in sexual season. They make hasty sexual speculations. They love sexual pleasure become sexually have-nots. They desire sexual things but refuse to sexually work for them. They are full of sexual excuses for not sexually working. They experience sexual sickness because of their sexual laziness.
They love to be sexual couch potatoes and they grow in their sexual nightmares that they are. They are sexual bump on a log which leads to sexual emptiness, sexual hollowness, sexual superficiality, and sexual loneliness. During sexual harvest, they are sexual slackers. They become slaves to sexual deviancy. I'm talking about those who are rape apologists, rape culturists, and those who commit sex crimes. Now let's talk about organized crime and wrap up with that. I remember being in the world of organized crime and I I remember at times where the sex workers in particular I remember that whenever they talked to me they usually didn't talk to me about their line of profession they usually didn't talk to me about criminal things because that's something we agreed to usually not talk about because I remember at five telling them, I want to talk about you. I know what you do and who you do it with, but as your friend, I want to focus on you as a person. They really teared up and hugged me, we hugged each other. I teared up too. Now, I remember with the sex workers in organized crime world, um, there are times where they would um, talk to me about how they were feeling. It could be any subject, politics, religion, geography, um, history, because the sex workers were extremely brilliant, uh, savants and geniuses even, and they were polymaths too. That means they were especially gifted in more than one area. So they could hold an intellectual conversation and they used dictionary words properly. 
their diction, their grammar was beautiful. And they were academically just outstanding, astounding. And they said that they turned to sex work. Some turned to it because of impoverishment. Some turned to it voluntary. I mean, they grew up fine. They just chose to do it. Some were lured into doing it. And some just tried it to see if they liked it. And they found out they did. And um, some were in it because of a family tradition. This is what you did. So they had multiple reasons. Now, there were some sex workers who... I remember they spoke in broken English, slang, Ebonics. Some did not even finish high school. Some were impaired when it came to reading and writing, meaning they had trouble reading some things, writing some things, so other people had helped them read and write some things. And they had literacy issues, so they had people to help them out with that to the best of their ability. And some were runaways. They came from broken homes, dysfunctional families. Don't me wrong, a lot, some of the sex workers did have healthy families, healthy homes. But the rest came from broken homes, dysfunctional families. And um, I do remember um, they never pushed me to do sex work. Um, it was always optional, like... I remember them telling me, if you ever want to get into this, I got you. And I'll make sure that nobody puts their hands on you. Um, Nobody treats you bad, not even sexually. Those are their exact words. And they said, I'll make sure nobody takes your money. Nobody drugs you up. Nobody, you know, pimps you out. You know, and try to make you drunk. They said, if anything, if you ever decide to do sex work, I'll gladly be your pimp. Meaning, I'll make sure you get paid fairly. And... We won't beef at all. And I won't force you to have my babies. And I won't be like a control freak to you. And then they said, I'll still protect you like I'm doing now. They'll sometimes talk to me about these kind of things in their cars or walking. They would hold my hand because they felt like, well, this is my way of showing you that I'm safeguard. You know, you safeguard. That's what they said, said to me. I remember them saying, if, you know, whenever you decide to do this, let me know. And, um, I'll also make sure that 
you know, people will treat you right no matter what. And I'll take care of those who stupidly dislike you. That's what they said to me. Um, I was five and I was just stunned and shocked. Barely said anything. I was just nodding my head in agreement. And I told them, okay, because what they said was beyond my um, child comprehension. And then I remember that they, um, you know, that they told me, um, that they, they said that in their minds, that they enjoyed talking to me more than anybody else in that world. And I remember that they, um, they told me that I was the only one who would have talks with them that had nothing to do with their line of work or the criminality. And I remember that they then later uh, said to me that they cherished the fact that I helped sexually heal them. They said, I'm much more careful about who my clients are and are not by simply being around you. Your spirit helps me to not do too much nor too little when it comes to sex and sex work in any area of my life. And they said, um, I'm even helping other sex workers to avoid getting raped and drugged up and violated and forced to have their pimps babies and forced to have, forced to, forcing as madams Madam's forcing people to impregnate them and um, being paid unfairly, they said, by learning from you, by learning who you are and what you're about, you've helped me do all these things. I know what we're all thinking, um, that this is just all dehumanization of a child manipulatively um and all I did was nod my head in agreement and just look at them in the eye while they were talking because again they were beyond my child beyond my child comprehension I'll share more in the next episode After I revealed to you that tithing was for the ancient Israelites, not for us modern-day humans. Tithing keeps people house poor and working poor. And they often don't tell you 
where the money that you give them is going. So charitable organizations tell you where the money is going, but a lot of churches don't. And getting receipts and tax write-offs is what you get from charitable organizations. Not so much from the churches. And charitable organizations tend to be better with money than churches are. Because churches tend to ask for money often because they're bad with money often. They don't save correctly because they spend so carelessly. They're too frugal, too cheap. They want you to have a W-2 and fill out financial forms. Just so they can have you sect, you know, financially enslaved to them. They had the $1,000 givers, $100 givers, $500 givers, $200 givers, $300 givers, $400 givers, $600 givers, $700 givers, $800 givers, $900 giver lines. These giver lines. But... If you only have $20, they don't really want you to get up. They only want the big money makers to get up and give them money. They put a price tag on salvation and sanctification. And all and a lot of that money goes to the pastors because they drive luxurious vehicles, live in luxurious homes, luxurious neighborhoods with luxurious people. And they wear luxurious clothing with luxurious jewelry. So the pulpits are 1%. And the pews are low income. Poor and middle class. The upper class are the members that they see as their favorites. And they are greedy and stingy with revenue. They refuse to address the economic inequality and the wealth inequality in the church. That's why they denounce movements in favor of economic equality and wealth equality.